Hello, hello, everyone. I'm very excited for this conversation today. I am talking to Christy Nadratowski. Christy is a wonderful human. We worked together many moons ago at a higher ed establishment in New York City that I won't name just to be on the safe side. And then we both went off in different directions. And then Christy came back and she, I'm going to say single-handedly launched my coaching business. She's amazing. I am absolutely her biggest fan and she's been such a gift to my life and I owe her so much. And so I asked her to come and talk to me today about her transition and how she moved. She took a path from higher education to ed tech higher education, uh, we could say, before moving into her current career in customer success, uh, where she has worked it with uh, SaaS and tech companies. So I wanted to talk to her today about her journey, how she got started in higher ed, how she decided that it was time to move out of it, what she currently does. So this is a great episode for you to listen to. If you too are thinking about changing careers if you're especially if you're thinking about pivoting out of higher education and also if you're interested in customer success so Chrissy thank you so much for joining me today hey Kristen thanks for that lovely introduction I Kristen and I often debate who actually started her business and it's her and she just (laughs) offered the exact right thing that I needed at that moment for me to be your first official client is that how that happened I, I would say I I have certainly, I had been coaching people to pivot for probably, I'm going to say maybe eight to 10 years before I worked with you, but always for free and for fun, uh-huh. question mark. I don't know if it's fun, but it was just something that I did because people asked for my help and I had done coaching sessions before with people. But so Chrissy came to me with both the need for coaching and also for the need of the process. I had never worked with someone in that capacity (laughs) together. And so I hadn't even contemplated they could be done together until until Christy. And then, of course, she had great success and she told people about it, which is very rare. A lot of times people work with me and they have success and they don't tell anybody about how it happened. So very, very rare for people to get wonderful brand ambassadors like Christy who are willing to tell people about the process that they went through. So that's why I thought she'd be so much fun to talk to today. So Christy, let's start maybe at the beginning of the beginning, which is how did you first move into higher ed? I have two degrees. One is an opera and the other is an African-American literature. And what do you do with those things was what I was being asked by everyone, my parents, my family, my friends. And I happened to be doing a local theater show with someone who worked in higher education. And she was just like, everything about you screams higher ed. So I know that you're like temping right now, sort of figuring out what you want to do because I had been in sales because that's. Typically, I think what happens is people get caught up in sales because 
sales recruiters target people who are just out of college, like extensively. So I had been targeted and I had been in two different sales roles and I wasn't really thrilled about them. It's really not my thing to be direct sales. I had been talking to this woman, her name's Bridget, and she was working at St. Thomas Aquinas. And she was just like, everything about you screams higher ed. And I was like, oh, cool. So I was working for a temp agency and I was like, hey, can I look at temp roles in higher ed? And I ended up getting invited to interview for the institution that Chris and I ended up working at together. And I was in a temp role for about six months there and really liked the area I was put in, which was student success. And I ended up getting a job there about six months later as a student success advisor. And that was great because I didn't need to have a master's degree for that position. For like academic advisor roles, you needed a master's degree. Um, but I also didn't have to start in admissions because that's typically where people start. And that is a sales role, admissions. So I got to skip that low entry salary sales gig and jump right to a middle-ish education role um, that also did not require a master's degree. I loved what I was doing. I was take, I was getting students coming to me who had issues with staying at the university. They were struggling financially or academically, and I was helping direct them to resources like an ombudsman would. But we had no official ombudsman at that institution that I knew about or that anyone else knew about. So students would get sent to me, and then I would interview them often, and we would talk about what was going on, what problems they were having, and I was helping them find resources. Uh, I was also collecting a lot of data because I do really like data. I'm a data nerd. And over the course of four years, I think in the end, I had talked to 600 students and had made two or three pretty substantial policy changes within the institution, two of those being in the financial aid realm. And that was something I was like really, really proud of. Um, I did end up eventually getting promoted to an online academic advisor role again, without a master's degree, even though I was enrolled in a master's program, uh, which was very unusual, but I did not love the structure of how that program was set up. There were too many cooks in the kitchen at the executive level. And the way that they had wanted me to perform the job was just not practical. So I started looking around, still wanted to stay in education because, and I still believe this, education really is, in my opinion, one of the great equalizers. I've changed my tune a little bit about what education means. It used to be college education, but as we've grown through a pandemic and all of these other things, I don't necessarily think formal education is necessarily the route anymore. But at the time, I did want to stay in education. So I ended up applying to jobs in Europe, and I did get hired to work at a company that did education partnerships. It was called Into University Partnerships. And I was over there for two years as a director of student support. And the reason that was a unique role was because in the UK, they have about 460 institutions and they are no more than 20 miles from any town center. So they have a ton of colleges to pick from. And online ed was like really new. This was 2015, 2016. So not that long ago, online education was still very new for the UK, and they did not know what they were doing unless you worked at the Open University. So 
Intu was trying to expand into this online learning space and they needed to understand how to manage students remotely. So that's where I came in because I had been, my master's degree was in online learning was work, that I was working on. And then I had also been running an online program at that institution in the US as an academic advisor. So then I came back after Brexit, worked at a for-profit institution. And that is when I needed, I learned I needed to break up with education because I had never worked at a for-profit institution before. And it was not for me. It was very expensive for the quality of education that those students were receiving. And it's in the name, it was for-profit. There was a focus on making money uh, off of them at every turn. And that to me was not what education was about. That remains not what education is about for me. Um, I firmly believe education should be public and free. Um, we pay taxes, so there you go. But uh, that was the impetus for me changing to ed tech. And I did that for a couple of years. And then that was also a for-profit business though. And so ultimately that the business I had started working for got acquired by a larger ed tech company that is known in the space and that I did not like the way they worked. They just were not, uh, in my opinion, and solely my opinion, they were not the education leader that they sort of made themselves out to be. And it was still solely driven by profit. So I couldn't stay in education because again, I don't believe that education should be for profit. So I was like, well, I might as well go and look at other options. And this is where Kristen enters my life again as the person who literally rescued me from this terrible, awful situation that I had found myself in. I had been promised a promotion three times at this job and that never came through. That was two times too many. I should have left after the first time that didn't happen, but uh, I needed someone like Kristen to help empower me uh, in my own thought process about it. And I was also just frustrated with the mindset of the majority of the people that I worked with. So I was ready to go and I was complaining and Kristen was like, hey, let's talk about it. And then we did. And I was like, I want to hire you. And Kristen was like, I need a minute to work up a package. Hang on. <laughs> so that's how, that's a, the brief story about how I came to where I, I came to be, to working with Kristen in a very successful and very helpful way. So for listeners, I just want to draw on some threads or maybe pull some threads together. Christy mentioned working at student success, and I believe that was with more traditional students. Is that right? Yes. I was working in the ed tech space with non-traditional as well, but yeah. I also did work with traditional students. So when you started student success traditional, then you did academic, and I know advisors often do emotional in addition to academic as well as tr more traditional student success, but that was with non-traditional students also. Yep. And then into in the UK, traditional and non-traditional or? Actually, yeah, both. It was a lot of ESL students. So people who wanted to go and take, get their university degrees in the UK, but didn't have high enough language skills. That was one population we focused mm -hmm. on. And then the other population was master's degree students, traditional master's degree students at the University of Newcastle and 
the London School of Economics and a few other places. Got it. And that role was student support. Then you worked at your first for-profit. And, and the reason I, I'm trying to draw all these together is because I would say the most common, there's two common paths in higher ed in my experience, which is either one, I have been at the same place for 150 years, right? So uh -huh. people who, uh, clearly not, you know, but I definitely talk to people on the regular who have been at their institutions for 23, 25, 27 years and work their way up their graduate degrees are in whatever it is their specialty is, right, that they work on in their institution. Typically, they've hit the highest role that they can have in their field. So there isn't a VP of international education or something like that, or student oh. success usually comes under enrollment. And those people, they've usually had their positions for a long time and they're not going anywhere. And if you were going to get them Usually you have to eventually get a PhD and a lot of roles in higher ed that are in the administration side come from faculty. So faculty descend up the ranks to become a higher level administrator rather than administrators becoming administrators, right? They yes. reach a point where they can't get any higher. Uh, or the other side is similar to Christie, which is they've done a lot of stuff. They've worked at different types of institutions, uh, different types of programs, uh, different types of students, and they're, they've been doing this for a bit, right? Christy clearly has a plethora of higher education experience in the academic and student success avenues. And she talked about support. She talked about interviewing them I'm just highlighting these things right she interviewed the students to find out what was going on with them so she could help solve their problems so she could make large-scale improvements to the institution that would help the customer I mean the student who is a customer right <laughs> uh, although of course that's the c word of higher ed yes customer customer and clearly both Christy and I are in agreement that education is life-changing and that it should not be monetized, <laughs> that it is highly valuable, but it is not something that people should be building empires through and on the backs of people who can't move ahead unless they have this education. So I just wanted to say all that because it, those are the sort of skills that make most people in higher education really pivotable because you do everything. You do so much. And it's so hard because higher education, so much of the ability for these institutions to keep their staff is to act like they don't do anything, right? You're lucky to have a job. You're lucky we keep you because Weaponized altruism also. Yes, absolutely. And as a, an, I, uh, oh yeah, I want, I, we could get to that. We should get to that separately. But because of that, a lot of times when people come to me, they say, I really want to leave, but I just have no other skills. No other I talents. said that to you. I literally yes. said to you, Kristen, <laughs> I don't know what else I can do with my master's degree in online education. I also did have the benefit of it having the word leadership thrown in there in that title, but that's not leadership degrees are bullshit. And so my degree was higher education 
leadership and administration with a concentration in online learning. So it was like bullshit on top of bullshit on top of bullshit. <laughs> so I was like, Kristen, what do I do with this triplicate of bullshit degrees? And you were like, let's not talk about just the degree because that's not the only thing you've done was get a degree. You have done all of these other things and you have all of these other skill sets that I think are really pivotable. And I was like, tell me more, please. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. This is a conversation I have with so many people. And so for Christy, she had worked with the entity's client, aka the people that pay the entity to continue to exist. So she had worked with those people. She had helped them with their problems that were academic. The way the higher ed thinks about it is it, it has academic success is how are you doing in your classes? And then student success is everything else, financially emotionally psychologically do you have support systems as a first generation student racially and ethnically and religiously all of those sort of things can call come into the whole realm of student success so basically it's academic and everything else student success so Chrissy had experiences both of those sides of the house if you will with the client she had instituted processes to help these folks she had implemented large-scale change management within the organization to better serve the folks that pay to keep the organization afloat. And all of those skills are highly pivotal to other types of industries. And so those are the things that we focused on to make the switch. So the first thing we mentioned was that Higher education institutions are often, I often describe it as an abusive relationship where the abuser is like, you're not pretty. Nobody else is going to like you. <laughs> not going to deal with your weird little laugh or whatever. Obviously, it's way more horrible than that. But essentially, higher education, that's what they do. They tell their staff, you're lucky to have a job. You should feel lucky that we let you be here. And this is not me being exaggerative. Like, dramatic. Is, yeah, I am a dramatic person, right? I didn't work in theater for all those years to not get some drama. But in this case, <laughs> you're just accurate. I'm just telling you what happens. There's a, a joke that when higher ed, you get a, a staff or a teaching award in May and told your possible layoff is coming in June. That's just like the regular thing that happens. So there's a lot of feedback that you're getting from your institution that says you don't matter. And then there's the weaponized altruism, which is uh, the idea that the work that you do for these students is so important. You matter so much. Everything is such a big deal that you can't take vacation. You have to be in on Saturday. We can't pay you more because we would be taking money from the children if we did pay you more, right? And all of those things. And so they they weaponize altruism and they take advantage of how much you care. And it's it's a cycle intended to keep you stuck because yeah. they need you to stay, right? So those two things together, the uh, belittling of your expertise, uh, oh, I don't, essentially, what's the phrase? 
I can't think of something that isn't ableist, but they stop you from being able to be successful. They'll say, gosh, we have this great new project we'd like you to take on, but we're also going to lay off three of your staff. We're going to cut your budget by half and we're going to double the goals you have to hit for this project. Good luck. And then when you it gets to your performance review where you've actually accomplished all of those things, they refuse to give you anything above met expectations because that's how they belittle the work that you have done and yep. the work, the extra work you've put in to make sure that things went well for the people you do care about or your students. Yes. So everything that you've put into that one project that was intended to help students only meets expectations after all of your resources have been taken away from you. Yes. And that is so ultimately damaging to you as not only like an employee, but a person. And when you get, when you end up on top of it, working for a place that only values money, like the for-profit institution I ended up at, that was just like, oh my God, I can't emotionally deal with this. It's, it violates all my morals, all of my ethics. And I am a person who's a people pleaser and I can't please these people. Mm -hmm. By the way, if you have a people pleaser personality in higher ed, this is probably you. Yeah. And I think other types that I tend to attract higher ed is the type A, mm -hmm. um, you know, folks, people with poor boundaries, right? You and I've talked about this before. <laughs> uh, um, extensively. Yes. Yeah. I don't, I don't know why <laughs> we both hide under our desks, but you could see how people who really, really want to please, who can't say no and need everything to be right, have a really hard time in higher education, but also why higher education would want them so much. Now, of course, we're talking about a system, higher education as a system. We're not talking about individual schools. We're not talking about individual people. We're talking about a system that unfortunately has reached a point where, as the norm, it takes advantage of and abuses its employees. Well, and I can say that because I've worked at multiple different places. So that I can confirm to be correct systemically and in all different kinds of environments, a not-for-profit, a non-profit, and a few different for-profit entities all behaved the same way to varying degrees of abusiveness, but it was all toxic and abusive. And that's where I think if you're thinking about talking to Kristen about pivoting, you should absolutely do it because there's also a wool over your eyes effect that's completely intentional where they are manipulating you into feeling badly about the good work you are, the actually good work that you are doing um, and then they are rewarding the sort of shady, crummy things that people are doing to retain higher profit margins for their institution. Mm -hmm. um, so you might be having conflicting feelings because you love education and you love the, the positive things that you've gotten to do for people that in your heart are positive, but that have been diminished by your administration or by the system you're working in. And you can do those things elsewhere. You don't have to do them just in higher education. It really is just a perspective change. And I think probably the most effective part of the coaching combo that I got out of Kristen was that 
we had these real conversations and she was able to reinforce that, yes, my feelings are correct. The gaslighting that higher ed does about the actual positive things you've contributed is wrong. You are, the fact that you've helped people is good and it is not to be diminished because helping people is a skill. That's not just something that anyone can do or anyone can do well. Caring enough to go that extra mile is a skill set. And it's something that unfortunately is historically associated with women in educational roles. And I'm talking K through 12, all the way up through higher ed and executive education, non-traditional ed, all of this is very historically denigrated as a female skill, but it is still a skill. And it's the culture is changing around those skill sets. Um, one of the things that Kristen and I talked about was that soft skills are actually something that educate, like uh, not education, but business leaders are looking for because there's too many people who don't have the ability to get along with or care about the jobs that they are doing. And so those skills that you get from higher ed, the higher ed inherently diminishes are actually very necessary and profitable skills outside of that sphere. And she's turned out to be extremely correct. So that's something that, what, right? <laughs> I knew that Kristen would be right about that. But it's something that when I first started talking to her was something I did not feel at all. I did not believe that I had a, a skill set. I kept saying things like, well, I'm just a nice person. And yes, and now I describe myself as a professionally nice person, but that is a, there's a career path there. And it's, it's not just being a nice person, but it is, that's the inherent role that a lot of people play in higher ed, that they're doing all these extra things, that they're caring so much about their students and their institution, and they're not getting rewarded financially or otherwise for. And there is a skill set there that you can shift into other industries that other industries desperately need. I just want to say that not only are they not rewarded, but they're often penalized, right? So if you if you hit your targets with the, they say, oh, if you hit your targets, then we'll give you a staff person back or we'll, we will give you some budget back or whatever. We just need you to hit the targets this year. And so you hit your targets and they say, that's great. We're going to double them. And then you don't get the person back and you don't get the money. So they want you to do twice as much with less people and money. So now what have you, what's the reward, aka the penalty? More work, right? You have yeah. even more work. So you worked until you didn't see your family. They don't remember who you are. You haven't been to one of your child's events. You haven't gone to some people's birthday parties or whatever. And you did all that in the hopes that you could do well for your students and hit the goals they set out for you. And then, oh, guess what? You get to do it again next year, but twice as much, right? So you get penalized with more work, less money, less help uh, over and over again. Now you talked a little bit about this, but I would love for you to think back on the time when you had made the decision that something had to give, that you had to make a different choice. So can you reflect back on that and what, what was going on with you at that point where you said, okay, it's time. So I think when we first started talking, had the pandemic hit at that point yet? 
it oh, had. It had okay. <laughs> so the pandemic hit and then my dog passed away. And then I was like, I don't, nothing about this feels good anymore. Nothing felt good though. So I was like, is this just the grief of losing things? You know, like the pandemic, we all lost our social lives. The only thing we were allowed to do was work. So when your whole focus is work, it's going to feel bad. And then my dog died. So that was a different kind of grief. And I was like, okay, maybe, maybe this is just grief. But as time wore on, and as I was able to reevaluate those feelings, it wasn't just those things. It was that those things made the work stress and the work feelings intolerable. And there was, while my colleagues were compassionate about those two things, the business wasn't, the business was not compassionate. And that felt really bad because I was a top performer at my job. I was the best armchair therapist you could ask for. I protected my institution and the business that they were partnered with. And I wasn't being taken seriously at work. Now, actually, it turns out I was being taken so seriously that they were keeping me in a position where I was, in their mind, effortlessly running everything. So this is overperformance, locking me in a role that there was no escape from. But I didn't realize that uh, until much, much later when I ended up, when I did end up leaving and they had to hire multiple people to cover for me. So it ended up being a situation where my, the work outside of work was feeling very overwhelming and distressing. And it allowed me to reevaluate what was a tolerable feeling and work was the top intolerable feeling in my life, unfortunately. It was really depressing. It was really depressing because I loved higher ed. I loved what I did for students. I loved all of that altruism that they punish you for. I really loved doing. So this was a really challenging thing for me. And I was very lucky and grateful to have someone who understood it in that very specific way that Kristen has lived through herself that you don't often get from people who don't understand the industry. So that was a very, very helpful thing. And I am someone who has no boundaries, as we've mentioned before already. And so it was, it was excellent. I needed that validation from someone at the time who had lived through similar things at, in, for, in my case, the same institution. I was ungaslit by Kristen which was very helpful and was necessary for me to make this transition that I ended up making and to clarify the skill set that I bring to the table and to help me see my value outside of education. So I came to that point though, through some really unfortunate things happening in my life. And I think a lot of people end up wanting to pivot when it's not just about work, when it's about other things and work becomes intolerable. Yeah, I think that is very true for a lot of folks. And 
I was on Gaslit by Kristen is definitely a t-shirt I'm going to design definitely <laughs> put in my new online shop, which uh, by the way, everyone listening, I do not have an online shop. I'm just joking, but <laughs> I think that would be delightful. Now, when Kristen and I worked together, based on her amazing skill set, I felt like she had many transferable skills that could work across different role types in different industries. And we did test several ideas before we found that we seem to be having the most success with customer success. So can you tell us a little bit about what someone in customer success does? Sure. So customer success uh, is a little amorphous when you're just looking at it from the outside, but uh, it has been around and as an official industry for probably 10 to 20 years, although it is finally gaining the popularity and recognition it deserves in the business sphere. So someone who is in customer success needs to be a caring person just from the get-go. You're not going to be successful in this role if you don't care about other people. There are plenty of other things you can do if you don't care about other people. Customer success is definitely not one of them. You have to be very emotionally intelligent about yourself, about other people. If you can read a room when you walk in it and you can interact with people in a way that makes them feel safe that is definitely a good skill set to have. And that's something that I think almost everyone who has worked in higher ed has had the opportunity to work on because you're de it's demanded of you that you do that. So coming from higher ed in general, you're probably a good fit for those two things. The other thing is being able to de-escalate situations. That's an important skill set because no matter what industry you're in, if you're working with clients, you will occasionally have be having to deal with angry people. And in higher ed, that's all the time. Students are mad about things all the time. You're probably dealing with them angry a lot. That's okay. That's actually a good thing to build upon because like I said, in, in any industry, you're going to run into people who are mad about things. Um, and then the hard skills you need are sort of organization, follow through, follow up skills, communication skills that so you should be a, a decent writer and you should be a decent communicator using your words verbally or otherwise. And it helps if you have a research background in any way. So if you have done any kind of research, which if you're coming from higher ed and you have a master's degree, you've had to do synthesization of different sort of seemingly unrelated ideas is very common in higher ed. That's another thing that businesses really need out of their customer success manager because you represent the customer in conversations internally. So you need to be able to synthesize what the customer experience is, where the roadblocks are, how frequently something is happening, and theoretically, hypothetically, have a solution in mind that can be a jumping off point for uh, the, the institution that you're working for to build off of. So if that sounds like you, you would make a great customer success manager. Former teachers are great at this. Former bartenders are great at this. Anyone who's worked in food service is probably going to be a good fit for something like this. And especially, I love especially hiring people who came from that success side of the house or even academic advisor side of the house in a traditional education environment. But anyone who's had to manage a student caseload 
uh, would be an excellent fit because you are noticing all of those things and working toward making those changes uh, in higher education all the time. Excellent, really well said and described. Now, there are one of the role types that I've worked with within uh, customer success is getting people to become customer success managers. But with you, we went to the director side, director of customer success. So what are your thoughts about anyone who's listening? What would make them a good fit to pivot into a director role instead of a CSM role? So the director role requires a little bit more of that research analysis and data categorization skill set. So if you are good at especially qualitative data and taking qualitative data and turning it into something quantitative, you're going to be a good fit for a director. You need management skills. Management skills are always helpful when you're in a director role because you should be directing people. That's been the, inherently in the title. Being willing to see and take on projects that the institution or the business does not even know that it needs. That is something that will make you an excellent director. So if you're a customer success manager or student success manager, and you want to move into a director role, being able to demonstrate that you have done things that were not directed of you for the benefit of the business, uh, just because you saw the inherent need, that's an extremely valuable skill. And then thinking outside of the box, I think is one thing that's really underrated, but coming from a different industry and then moving into business customer success, I think higher ed folks are definitely going to be adding a different perspective that the industry needs because in higher ed, you always have to be thoughtful about how and why you're doing things because of the aforementioned staff and budgeting cuts. You have to be very intentional in a way that businesses with money don't always have to be. So you're going to bring that skill set anyway, but I would say definitely the analytical and communication skills and management skills of a director set you apart from a working member of a customer success manager team. Awesome. Thank you. You made me think of one thing that I do want to remember to say before we continue on, which is that for the most part, when business folks are interviewing my clients who are coming from nonprofits or higher eds and then getting them onboarded, they they do this whole sort of, are you ready for this? This is so different than what you have ever done and you are going to be mind blown and you have to be really committed, right? And the higher ed people are, okay, okay, ready to see what's going to happen. And then they get the easiest day of their lives and they say, yes. Is, any, is someone else sweating? Because there's no sweating. <laughs> it's easy, right? Because the amount of work that is required of you in higher ed is so much work that it will feel like you've taken on a part-time job in comparison. Literally. I don't tell my, my current boss this, but I can, on a weekly basis, manage my client load uh, in about 20 to 25 hours because... That also, let me just, the one thing about switching over to business that everyone in higher ed is going to love is that no one is screaming at you or crying at you. These are business men, generally, I'm working with at the director level, but business people understand that even if they're frustrated, they have to behave professionally. And when you're working with students, 
especially traditional age students, their prefrontal cortex is absolutely not done growing. They are not good at making choices and their choices are often emotional. So you're doing all of this emotional labor on top of the actual work that you are being asked to do in higher ed. And when you get to a business setting, the majority of that emotional labor goes away. And it is great. I have never had a client scream at me. Are they mad? Sure. Do I have to de-escalate situations sometimes? Yeah, absolutely. But are they yelling at me while they're mad? No. Are they crying? Absolutely not. Are all of those things that are really, for an empathetic person, really challenging to manage in a higher education workspace gone? Yeah, for the most part, it's pretty great. And when you are used to emotionally regulating other people and you don't have to do that anymore, your workload goes from 60 hours a week till 25. So it, it definitely has been much healthier for me to be not in a higher education space from a mental health perspective as well. Oh, that's yeah, wonderful. Pretty great. Yeah. So then the question that kind of ties into both the idea of activity and the idea of the emotional labor is how would you say your life and it can be your work life and your personal life change. What's the difference between what it was like before and what it's like now? During the pandemic and after my dog died, I didn't really want to talk to or see pretty much anybody. I was also living far away from my friends because it was closer to my job. And then I got a primarily remote job. Every once in a while, I do have to go in to see clients or to the office, but it's not that frequent, thankfully. And I was able to move closer to my friends and family. And now it's the holiday season, but for the past three weeks, I have been doing something almost every night with my friends and family that has nothing to do with my job. Very rarely do I have to get on a late night call. Very rarely do I have to work weekends. So I've gotten a significant amount of my personal time back because I'm not having to chaperone a dance or do an activity late night with my students. Info session or a, right. a class presentation or something like that. Yeah, or a faculty presentation where mm -hmm. you're presenting on why ADA is important and you can't violate it because it's illegal. <laughs> yeah, Just yeah. as a poor example. Whoa, um, that didn't happen. <laughs> you're not having to go to conferences all weekend because conferences are during the week. When you're being asked to go to business offsites, that's a pain, but you're asked to do that in higher education as well. Sometimes you have to go to these things and it takes up your whole weekend. So you're working for 14 or 21 days straight. And that is not happening in my life anymore. So you get your personal time back. You get the ability to have your emotional labor spent on people who matter to you. Overall, my life has improved tremendously from switching careers from higher ed to tech, which is what I'm in now. Amazing. That's so, it makes me so warm and fuzzy to hear all of this. So now for folks who are listening and they want to do it too, they're pretty excited. Say, all right, Christy, this sounds fun. What tips would you have for folks who want to make a pivot? Okay. So this is going to sound very much like Kristen paid me to say this, 
but I'm not being paid to say this. I just, as Kristen mentioned, I firmly believe in what she's doing and how she's doing it. And I will tout her services anywhere and everywhere I have an opportunity to. But Kristen has a bunch of different packages. And I encourage you when she has space to book the highest package that she <laughs> has, because that's what I did. And part of what had happened was like, we had been working together and Kristen was asking me to do things like write my everything resume. And that took me, I think, what, like four weeks to get to you because it was such an emotional, like I was so burned out emotionally that I couldn't even do anything positive for myself. And I knew that this was going to be positive, but I was like dreading sitting at my computer for any extra time and spending time on myself because I spent everything I had on other people. So I, when I did finally get that together, then it was time for me to work with Kristen on my resume. So we did that. And then it was time for me to apply to jobs. And I was like, I can't. So every other meeting we'd have, Kristen would be like, how many jobs did you apply for? And I'd be like, none, none, I couldn't do it. So we would sit on a session together and apply for jobs together. And then one day Kristen was like, what if I did all of that for you? And I said, what, is, what does that look like? Tell me what that looks like. And she was like, you have a resume. And as long as you don't care what jobs I'm applying to for you, because I we've done personality assessments, we've done skill assessments, we've done all of these things. And I have this beautiful document for you about you. What if you let me evaluate jobs for you and apply for them? What if you let me write your cover letter? And it's like a pretty generic one that I can give you. So if you see something you want to apply for, you can. But what if I did all of that? And I was like, what are you offering me? This <laughs> is amazing. So I immediately jumped at that. And honestly, Kristen carried me to safety on her back as she has done for many other people. But she took all of that emotional labor for myself off my plate. And so I will say, could I afford it? No, because I had bought a dating service that was $10,000. That was, by the way, garbage. And when I got a refund, I gave it all to Kristen. That was the whole thing. I took all of my money that I was supposed to send, spend on a dating service that I could not have emotionally participated in anyway and spent it on putting myself in a much better situation with Kristen. It's worth it. Everyone who has done that high, highest package that Kristen has, who I've talked to, has said it's 100% worth it. So that's my actually best advice is let Kristen do it for you. Also, I think it makes her life a little bit easier sometimes mm -hmm. when you just let her do the applications for you and she just lets you know when you have an interview. But if that's not it's something you can afford, I would say the things that you need to do are you have to put the work in. You it's it is work though and you have to treat it like work. So if you have the luxury of carving out any time in your in your actual workday to spend on yourself, even if it's your lunch break, do it. Spend that lunch break working on the tasks that Kristen has set out for you and her very organized programs and her memberships and just do what she tells you to do. If Kristen tells you to do something, it's not because she wants to make your life harder, it's because she wants to make your life easier. So do that. Spending the time is worth it. Even when I had to do it and it was excruciating, it got Kristen and I to a place where she could just take everything off my plate and run with it. When she offers you a session to meet for interview prep, also do that. That's very <laughs> necessary. 
because sometimes even if you're great at interviewing, like I am great at interviewing, I will give myself that credit. It is different. It's a different interview than you're used to in higher ed. It's not as touchy feely as you're used to. You do have to adjust some of your language so that it matches the the industry you're moving into. Take advantage of all of those services that Kristen does offer. Again, I know I sound like a paid ad, but this is really what I went through with Kristen. And at first I was a little resistant to the idea that I needed interview prep. And I did a couple of interviews and they went well, but they weren't the right fit for me anyway. And then I got this interview for the job that I ended up taking, which is the one I'm in right now. And I did the interview prep with Kristen because I knew I really wanted it and they were gonna pay me what I was worth. And I ended up getting a $60,000 raise. So that was awesome. Could I have gotten the job without the interview prep? Maybe, did I feel so much more secure going into that interview? because I had done that with Kristen, absolutely. So that's another thing, like do interview prep, study your industry that you're looking to go into. If you're interviewing for customer success jobs, uh, there's a success hacker customer success certificate. It's like $250. I would say it's worth it. I don't recommend random certifications very often, but that is one that I have seen help people pivot as well. And actually in my industry, in my current job, we are going through that customer success, success hacker certification ourselves because my boss sees the value in it as well. So you can get ahead of that uh, and do that one. But generally speaking, just learning how to talk about the pivoting skill sets that you're bringing through either listening to podcasts or something along those lines, listening to more business related things and adjusting your vocabulary to that and then working with Kristen on interview prep and your resume and all that fun stuff. That's, that is what I would say was the most helpful to me. Amazing. Christy, thank you so much for coming today to tell me all about this and for our wonderful listeners to hear more about your journey in and then out of higher education and what customer success is like. So maybe if they're interested in it, they can uh, go and follow up because of all the wonderful information you've given. And I just thank you so much. And again, you have changed my life and I adore you. Oh, you've changed mine and I adore you.